Abstract Gamer, Episode 3. In this episode, I discuss handicaps, the GIF project, and the game of GIF. Hello, my name is Joe Peterson, and I am the Abstract Gamer. Today I'm going to talk about handicaps, and then I'll discuss the GIF project of games and the game of GIF. Jump into handicapping. Let me tell you a little bit about what I think goes into making a good abstract strategy game. The game should have simple rules. It should be very easy to explain the game to a beginner so that they aren't spending their time thinking about how things move, but instead they get to think about the strategy and tactics they want to use. Which brings me to the second thing accessible strategies. A good abstract strategy game should have strategies that a beginner can see and try out. However, it should also be possible to devote a lifetime to it. So, while a beginner can start out by seeing the strategies, the game should just get better as you play it more. I prefer it if people haven't yet devoted lifetimes to it. I don't really enjoy playing chess with people who have devoted their entire life to chess. However, I think it should have potential that people can. A good abstract strategy game must also have a large enough player base that it is possible to find opponents. The appeal should be broad enough that people will play it. You may know from my previous podcast that Chushogi is my favorite game. However, finding an opponent in real life is often difficult. Chushogi has about the smallest player base that is big enough. The last criteria is that players of varying skill must be able to play it and still have fun. Some games are great, but only if you and your opponent are close enough to each other in skill. The best games can compensate for moderate or even large gaps in skill by handicapping well. Handicapping is common in many sports and games. For any of you who are not familiar with the term, it is basically a method of making a contest more fair. I'll talk about various ways you can handicap a game in a bit, but let me bring in an example from a sport, bowling. In bowling, you are given a handicap that is the difference between your average and some arbitrary number set by the league you are bowling in. For example, if your average score is 150 and the magic number that the league picks is 180, you will have a handicap of 30. During the league, you will have this number added to your score. If everyone bowls their average, then the match will be a tie. So the idea is that everyone wants to bowl better than their average. Of course, if you do that, then next week your handicap will go down. Anyway, that is what a handicap is. Some method of equalizing the chances of winning. Some people don't like the idea of receiving a handicap. Sometimes it's because they feel that a win means less in a handicap game. Personally, I disagree. I play games for a lot of reasons. The most important of which is to have fun. Much of the fun that I get from games is in deciding what to do. In a game where I am the stronger player, it's no fun to beat up on the weaker player. I don't mind struggling from a losing position because I often learn a lot, but it's definitely more fun if I have a shot to win. For example, I won't play Puerto Rico with my friends anymore. They have progressed so far beyond me that the player to my left wins far more than his fair share. I'll play with my Thursday night game group, if we ever dig it out, because they are probably closer to me in skill. It's just not any fun to sit there while everyone wonders why you're doing these stupid moves when it's simply that you don't understand that they're stupid. So, in addition to just having fun, I also like to improve myself. Handicapping is perfect for this. If I'm the stronger player, I still need to come up with good moves in a handicap game. Go is probably the epitome of games that can be handicapped. 
while there has been a lot of study done on handicap play, between most players, the handicap system allows two players to play against each other while still feeling like Go. In Go, when two amateurs are not of equal skill, the stronger player allows the weaker player to place one additional stone per skill level difference. The location of the stones are fixed, but they're fixed at some of the best starting points in the game. The part that makes Go handicapping so awesome is that it's constantly changing and self-adjusting. So, in theory, a player should win two out of three non-handicap games against a player that is one rank below him. So, using this, when one player wins three consecutive games, you change the handicap one level in that person's favor. For example, I play Go against one of my coworkers. I've been giving him a two-stone handicap. However, he recently beat me for the third consecutive time, so now we move to the one-stone handicap. That is, he will take black, which moves first, and I will take white, and we will play with no Komi. So, the goal for me is really to maintain or increase my handicap, and my opponent's goal is to reduce the handicap. Another game that handicaps extremely well is Shogi. I talked about Shogi in my last podcast, but for a quick refresher, Shogi is similar to chess in that you maneuver your pieces to try to checkmate your opponent's king. However, Shogi is played with drops, which means that when a piece is captured, it's not removed from the game. Instead, the player that captures it gets to put that piece in hand, and later, as a separate move, can place the piece back onto the board. Because Shogi is played with drops, the stronger player can give up a piece, and the nature of the game still remains the same. Unlike chess, the stronger player can't just sit on this advantage and simplify by exchanging pieces. In Shogi, if there is one great difference, then the stronger player takes white and removes his left lance. If there are two grades difference, then you play a match of two games and the stronger player takes white, and in the first game, he will remove his left lance. And in the second game, he will remove his bishop. Only his bishop. He gets to keep his left lance in the second game. And then if there's a three grade difference, the stronger player removes his bishop. This scale continues on, but I've never played in a game with a larger handicap than this, so the details are a little foggy. I'll link a reference in my show notes. These two games have centuries of study behind them and well-defined handicapping system. So what about games without such a history? I'll talk a little bit about how to handicap other games that don't have defined handicaps. The key is to try to keep the feel of the game the same. Handicapping some games simply turn them into a different game, which, while that might be fun, It's not my goal here. One of my favorite handicaps is to give the weaker player more time. If you play with a timer in a game, like chess for example, you can give the weaker player more time to think. I think it works wonderfully in Scrabble. I'll take the standard 25 minutes, and my opponent can have 35 or 40 minutes. I've probably spent more time setting word lists than most non-tournament players out there, and the extra time helps even things out. The easiest handicap to do, and one that works well with most games, is takebacks. You can allow a player to take back a move after you've responded. If you want to make it a little more competitive, you can force him to accept the second move. Or if you want to make it a slightly smaller handicap, you can have a limited number of takebacks per game. The player starts with, say, three chips, and discards one every time he takes back a move. Another possible handicap is to allow the player to force you to make a different move. This is interesting if used as a handicap, but most of the time I've used it, the flavor of the game has changed because my opponent has used it as part of his strategy. 
he would make a move that is clearly not in his best interest, but because he can force me to respond in a suboptimal way, it turns out great for him. Another possible handicap is that you can give the player extra moves. This is essentially how the go handicap works, and it works great for many games like that. I've used it in Hex, but it turns out we were probably a little bit too close in skill, and it really turned out poorly for me. In some of these Euro games, you might try giving players more money or gold or dinars or whatever the currency is. In Risk, you can give your opponent more armies. In Zerts, which I'll talk about later, you can require fewer marbles to be captured in the various colors. In Backgammon, you can allow them to re-roll. I guess that's essentially a take-back, but it's another option. In many games, it'll take a little trial and error to determine what is really the best handicap, but if you're interested in improving the game while still having fun, it's worth it, and there's no reason that you should feel that a victory means less just because you were given a handicap. GIF, spelled G-I-P-F, is the first game in a series of games from a project of the same name. Okay, was that confusing? So, anyway, the games in this series were designed by Chris Berm, and the six games in this project were released between 1997 and 2006. The game GIF was released in 1997, and it's a very nice in-a-row game. The board is a pattern of lines that divide up a hexagon, and you play on the intersections of those lines. Essentially, the play area is a standard hex board with four points on a side, making a total of 64 points to play on. In addition, there is another ring around the board that is not part of the play area, but helps to see how pieces are introduced into the board. More on that soon. The board I have is a bifold board, but I believe there is a newer printing with a quadfold board. The pieces are black and white, interlocking checker-like pieces. They have a nice plastic with a raised ridge set in slightly from the edge to allow them to stack without toppling. In preparing for this review, I went through the rules from start to end, all six pages of it. I was mildly surprised to find that there are three versions of the game. I only knew about two of them. I'll go through all three versions in order since they build on each other. In the basic game, each player has 15 pieces. Each player takes three of his pieces and places them in the corners of the outside hex defining the play area such that the colors alternate. This leaves the player with 12 pieces, and these are called your reserve. Your reserve is important because the object in the basic game is to run your opponent out of pieces such that he cannot play a piece. You take turns putting one piece from your reserve onto the board. You do this by placing a piece on one of the dots outside of the play area and then pushing it onto the play area. If that point is occupied, you push the piece to the next point and repeat until it reaches an empty point. If you ever form a row of four or more pieces of the same color, the person who's playing that color must remove these pieces and put them into the reserve again. But here's the interesting bit. In addition, they must also remove any pieces that are in a direct extension to those pieces also. If they are of the opposing color, they are removed from the game. If they're friendly pieces, they still go back to your reserve. That's it for the game. Pretty simple, huh? It is important to note that the pieces do not move on their own. To move them, you must push them with a piece from the reserve from the outside of the board in. Now, I've never played this version of the game, but it sounds nice and simple. I imagine that it would be a slightly longer game than the standard game. One element that I do like about it is that it has a nice handicapping feature built right in. 
This game comes with 18 pieces per side, so you can give the weaker player up to three more pieces with ease. And the next time I teach a new player this game, I may indeed start with this version. However, when I was taught, I learned the standard version. This version is identical to the basic version, except for the introduction of a new piece, a GIF piece. Similar to a King and Checkers, a GIF piece is a stack of two pieces. Now this is why there are 18 pieces in the box. The starting pieces get doubled up. The thing that makes a GIF piece special is that when it is in a four in a row, its removal is optional. That is, you can leave it on the board, which gives you more offensive opportunities. If you do choose to remove your own gift piece, then it returns as two separate pieces. In addition, a player loses if he has no gift piece on the board. So now you have two ways to win. Capture all three of your opponent's gift pieces, or capture enough pieces that your opponent cannot place another piece. Now this is a version I learned, and it's nicely balanced and plays in about 45 minutes. The third version of the game is the tournament version. This game is identical to the standard version, except how you start. Instead of starting with three gift pieces on the board, you start with 18 single pieces off the board, and on your first turn, you must introduce a gift piece onto the board. And you do this just like you would make a standard move, except you put two pieces together and push them on the board. In addition to this, on each of your turns after this, you may introduce another gift piece onto the board until you've placed a single piece. So you could spend your first nine turns playing gift pieces, but if you do that, then you better hope that some of those return because that will be your last play. Once you've played a single piece, you cannot introduce any new gift pieces. Generally, three to four gift pieces is what I prefer. Now this version adds an interesting choice. Basically, you get to decide how aggressive you want to be. The more gift pieces that you have, the more aggressive you can be. But you must be careful, because each gift piece takes two pieces to move. I tend to prefer this version to the others because it plays just a little bit faster. So check that out. I went through almost every rule, and it only took me a couple minutes. One of the things that makes GIF so good is that the board is constantly changing. However, it does suffer from a difficult handicapping system. You can just use some of the potential pieces, which I'll talk about soon, and use them as regular pieces and give them to the weaker player. But even a moderate difference in skill requires about three or four pieces. In addition, allowing takebacks, one of the better handicaps for this type of situation, is very difficult because the board is changing. That said, I think it is a great game. GIF was reviewed in the first issue of Abstract Strategy Magazine, and in that review, Kerry Hanscom made a comment that resonated with me. I started using a paraphrased version of this quote. I now describe this game as Abalone meets Gomoku. Unfortunately, this comment is lost on most people who don't already know about GIF. Overall, I highly recommend GIF if you like abstract strategy games. The game does take 45 minutes to an hour, making it one of the longer games in the series, but I still enjoy myself throughout the entire game. The thing that made GIF so fascinating to me was that there was a metagame built into it. When I mentioned the GIF project, that really had multiple meanings. GIF is the flagship of a series of six games. That series is one meaning of the GIF project. The series consists of GIF, Tamsk, Zertz, Devon, Yinch, and Punkt. Yes, these are all nonsense words, and I'm not certain that I'm pronouncing them correctly, but hey, give me a break. The other part of the GIF project 
is how these games can be combined into one metagame. The base of this metagame is GIF. I've only played one game with potentials myself, but I understand the concept. Here's how it works. You determine the types of potentials you want to play with. And I'll tell you what these potentials can do in a minute. So after you finish putting your GIF pieces on the board, you then can start introducing pieces loaded with potentials. So you have more types of pieces now is what this really means. You have your basic single piece. You have a gift piece, which is two basic pieces stacked on top of each other, and which we already know about. And finally, you have pieces loaded with potentials that you choose. First, you must play any of your gift pieces that you want, then any loaded pieces, then single pieces. Similar to the tournament version of GIF, once you introduce a single piece, you may not introduce any other type of piece. Alright, so now what is a loaded piece? It's similar to a gift piece in that it is two pieces stacked together, but the top piece is a special piece. The ones I have are differ in a couple ways. One of them has divots in the ring, and the other one has a hole poured in the center. Another way it's similar to a gift piece is that you do not need to remove it when it is in a line of four, Ex with an exception that you cannot leave a line of four on the board. So if you make a line of four with only GIF and loaded pieces, you do have to remove at least one of them to break up the line. If a loaded piece is ever removed from the game, that potential is lost. Now, what can you do with these potentials? Well, there are three types of potentials that I know about. One is the TAMPS potential. When a piece loaded with a TAMPS potential gets pushed onto the center point, you get another move. That potential is then discarded. Now, this extra move is still considered one turn, so after the first move of this special turn, you don't remove any pieces. This is only done at the end of the turn. Even if you create a line of four in this middle step, you don't remove the four pieces. The Zertz potential allows you to jump instead of placing a piece from your reserve. Unlike the TAMPS potential, this can be done on any turn. You don't need to get this piece to the center. To do this, you simply make a jump and discard the potential. This jump can be over any number of pieces in a straight line, but it may not jump over an empty point, and it may not jump off the board. So that is, the piece must land on the very next empty point, and it must jump over at least one piece. As a side note, this does not capture the pieces that are jumped. The third potential that I know about is the Devon potential. The Devon potential is interesting in that it allows you to place this potential onto an opposing basic piece or a piece loaded with a Devon potential, and it essentially neutralizes that piece. So you cannot place this on an opposing gift piece or any other potential. To use it, you simply move it from your loaded piece to an opposing piece that is adjacent to it. This essentially converts that piece to your color. But when it gets removed from the board, the underlying piece stays put. You only remove that top potential that is converting the piece. This has potential to cause some very interesting positions, but it didn't do so in our game. I don't know what the Yinch and Punked potentials do yet. I didn't do enough research to even know if their powers have been announced. I do know that they are not yet available to purchase. However, there are three types of pieces already released, and if you already have them, you probably don't need to buy more if you don't plan on using more than three types of potentials. I only own two of the potential pieces right now. So the game I played in that we used potentials 
use the Devon potential, allowing you to neutralize another piece, and the Tamps potential to allow you to give another turn. The Tamps potentials were huge. Sometimes it did lead to some confusion because we were constantly trying to remove the pieces between the two moves. I say constantly, but I think we only used three of the six Tamps potentials between us. The Devon potentials really didn't get used much, but they influenced the game tremendously. It really almost felt like a completely different game. I would not recommend using potentials unless you are already familiar with GIF itself. And then, I wouldn't introduce two potentials at once. I think we bit off a little more than we could chew that game. Start with one type and go from there. The other thing you need to consider is how many potentials you will be allowed to start with. The recommendation from the publisher is six per player, and we used three of each per player. So we had three Devon and three Tamps potentials. If you like GIF and want to try adding a little more complexity to the game, I'd say go ahead and add the potentials. I don't think that these potentials make it a better game, but it certainly does change things up, which makes it interesting in its own right. Now, if that wasn't enough, there's yet another way you can play with the potentials. If you want a full night of GIF gaming, you can combine the various games. Now here's how this works. You're playing the game with potentials, as I mentioned before, but when you try to use a potential, your opponent can challenge its use. When you do so, you set aside the GIF game and play a game that the potential is named for. If you try using a Devon potential, your opponent can challenge its use and you play a game of Devon. If you don't lose the game, you get to use that potential. If you lose that game, then you don't get to use that potential and you lose it. That is, the potential is removed from the game. There are a few things that you do have to agree on before you start playing. First, how many challenges can you make? If you can only make one challenge each, then perhaps you can keep the session to be below three hours. If you can challenge three of six, then you're in for a little bit longer night, and this is actually the recommendation I got from the website. I really do want to play with combining the games, but it tends to scare my regular opponents off. So anyone who has played this or has comments on it, I would love to hear them at abstractgamer at gmail. Com. And now for some news and announcements. I've been having some problems with Audacity lately. I recorded this entire GIF series episode once. It turned out way too long, so I tried to slice it up into three pieces, and I wound up losing about a third of the audio. I did use a recovery tool that I found on the web, and it seemed to work, but the next day the newly saved file was nothing but static. If anyone has any experience with this, I'd love to know what I did wrong, just in case it happens again. I can give as much detail as you would need in email. Again, contact me at abstractgamer at gmail.com. Also, I'd like to thank everyone for the feedback. Please keep it coming. I, I knew that Chu Shogi might have been a little ambitious for the first show, but since I loved the game so much, I felt that I needed to start with it. It's the game that's easiest for me to just talk about at length. In other news... I have a promo available. Anyone who has their own podcast has free permission to use this promo. And finally, if anyone can come up with a good logo for me, I'd love the help. I'm fiddling with some ideas, but so far nothing is just clicking into place. I'd like to have a small logo for the album cover art, and something that integrates well into a larger banner as well. So anyway, that's it for today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Abstract Gamer, and please join me next time when I discuss online gameplay and zerts. Funky Rap and Whimsy Groove by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons Attribution 2.0. 
http colon slash slash creativecommons.org slash licenses slash buy slash 2.0. This information and more can be found at www.abstractgamer.com.